Welcome back to the American Thoracic Society's Breathe Easy podcast. This is Megan Cyrilis with the Topics in Pulmonary Hypertension series. Today we are going to discuss the sex paradox in pulmonary hypertension. I'm fortunate to be joined by Dr. Tim Lamb, who is an Associate Professor of Medicine and the Director of Pulmonary Research at Indiana University. He's also the co-director of the IU Pulmonary Hypertension Program and an active member of the Planning Committee for the ATS Pulmonary Circulation Assembly. Dr. Lamb also runs a research lab focused on identifying the mechanisms by which sex hormones and their receptors affect pulmonary vascular remodeling and right ventricular function. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me, Dr. Lamb. Well, thanks for having me, Megan. Um, it's a pleasure and an honor to join you. And um, thank you for highlighting this topic, which uh, really is near and dear to my heart. Yeah, I am excited to learn more about it. So why, let's just jump right in. So what, in your words, what is the sex paradox in pulmonary hypertension, or how would you explain it to somebody who has never heard about it? Yeah, um, that's that's a great question. So, you know, it actually has been long known that being female represents one of the most powerful risk uh, factors for the development of pulmonary arterial hypertension, or PAH. And then, you know, over the last two or three decades, when we started researching this issue, actually a couple of paradoxes have emerged. And um, these paradoxes really root on two main observations. First, uh, there are differences between investigations in humans and data derived from animal studies. So in the latter, estrogens have been found to be protective in various models of PAH, um, which you know, obviously contradicts um, the data that we have from human um, PAH registries where um, being female represents a risk factor for disease development. And then the second uh, paradox is that despite the uh, pronounced tendency for PAH to develop more commonly in women, women once affected by PAH exhibit better survival and better right ventricular adaptation than men. So these two things, you know, so the discrepancy between animal studies and human observations, and then this puzzling finding that women are more prone to developing PAH, but once they develop PAH, do better. These two things have been termed um, as the sex paradox of, of, of PAH or the estrogen paradox of, of PAH. That's fascinating and complicated, it sounds like. <laughs> it um, is. It is complicated, but I think we're beginning to understand it better. So why do you think that the females that have pulmonary hypertension actually do better? Is it something to do with the heart or is it something to do with the pulmonary circulation? What do we know about that? Yeah, Megan, you're you're absolutely right. It's complicated <laughs> and, and complex. And yeah, I don't want to pretend that we have fully understood and fully deciphered the underlying issues. But I think we've made significant progress over the last you know, 10 or 15 years. I, I think whenever we talk about you know, gender differences um, and sex differences, we, we think about sex hormones and particularly estrogens. And um, I think estrogens do have um, a major role in these observations, and we can talk about that in a second. Um, but I think we also have to you know, understand um, and keep in mind that there are or that there might be sex hormone independent effects at play, um, such as genetic factors. You know, obviously women do not have a Y chromosome, whereas men have a Y chromosome. 
Um, and there have been some recent data that maybe uh, there are some Y chromosome mediated effects that could play a role here. Um, in addition to genetic factors, there might be epigenetic factors at play. Um, and all these pathways um, then certainly interact with you know, other clinically relevant pathways such as metabolism, immunity, inflammation, angiogenesis, and um, the function of other genes such as BNPR2. And then lastly, you know, we should not forget that it's not just biology that is at play here, um, but there are also various socioeconomical factors likely at play that quite frankly have not been studied um, in detail. But let me circle back to the to the estrogen issue because I think that's where you know, we have most of the data um, at this point. So as I said, women are more prone to developing pH and um, there has been a solid body of evidence emerging that indicates that estrogens drive pulmonary vascular remodeling. Um, for example, they drive pulmonary artery smooth muscle cell proliferation and migration. And it is easy to you know, understand how if you promote smooth muscle cell proliferation and, and migration, how that might you know, foster the development of a disease such as pulmonary arterial hypertension that is really characterized by uncontrolled cellular proliferation. And in particular, we know that there are certain estrogen metabolites, such as 16-alpha-hydroxyestrone, that promote um, disease development, and especially in patients with BMPA2 mutations. And then in addition to that, um, there might also be crosstalk between estrogens and BMPA2 signaling, where um, there has been some recent data that estrogen actually impairs BMPA2 signaling. A secondary but, hit sort of with, a, with having a BMPA2 mutation than being female and having that estrogen might actually sort of enhance the the signaling. Right, that right. Thing? So that yeah, exactly. So this you know comes back to this two hit hypothesis. And you know, as you know, not everybody with a BMPA2 mutation develops PAH. Um, penetrance is actually relatively low, um, mm -hmm. 10 to 20 percent. So one of the current theories is that maybe estrogens serve as a second hit which will then you facilitate a PAH development in, in genetically susceptible individuals. But let's take a step back. You know, if you look at estrogens in, I think, in a very basic fashion and in a very rudimentary fashion, estrogens are pro-survival hormones, right? I mean, you know, one of their main purposes is to, you know, facilitate the growth of the embryo during Pregnancy. So again, I think you can imagine how something that is pro-survival and pro-proliferative could make pulmonary vascular remodeling worse or could trigger pulmonary vascular remodeling. But then at the same time, these pro-survival and anti-apoptotic effects of estrogens might be beneficial in the right ventricle, right? Mm -hmm. um, where in the setting of you know, right ventricular dysfunction and failure, we, we have an environment that is characterized by cardiomyocyte and endothelial cell apoptosis and inflammation and oxidative stress. And this is an environment where estrogens pro-survival and anti-apoptotic effects might actually be beneficial, right? Because here um, we could actually easily imagine how estrogens are um, preventing cardiomyocyte death and um, attenuating cardiomyocyte stress. Um, so I think, you know, this, this pro-survival effect of, of estrogens might be beneficial in the right ventricle, 
but maybe not so much in the pulmonary vasculature, at least in some populations. I mean, I think this could maybe, at least in part, explain why women on the one hand are more prone to developing the disease, but then on the other hand also exhibit better RV adaptation and better survival. Oh, that's very interesting. It, we talked a lot about estrogen. Is there any signal for testosterone? So we know there's a lot of overlap between these two sex hormones. Has, has that been looked at at all? Yeah, terrific question. Um, and you're right. You know, we well we always think about estrogens when we think about sex and gender differences, but there are other hormones such as testosterone. And you know, interestingly enough, there is very little data um, out there on testosterone. Um, what we do know is from data that has been performed in in a, I think a mouse uh, pulmonary artery banding model, is that um, testosterone actually worsens RV dysfunction and worsens RV fibrosis. So at least in the right ventricle, um, testosterone seems to be doing things that are detrimental to um, RV adaptation. The role of testosterone in the pulmonary vasculature is not well studied at all, interestingly. Um, we do know that testosterone can be a vasodilator, but that's pretty much it, you know. Other than that, the effect of testosterone and pH is actually widely um, unknown. And the same holds true for, you know, for another sex hormone that we don't always think about a lot, um, and that's um, progesterone. Right, yeah. yeah. That seems that that can play an important role as well. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, I will say um, there's one more hormone that people don't think about a lot, and that is DHEA, which stands for dehydroepiandrosterone. <laughs> so that's a mouthful. Um, but that's one of the <laughs> it's one of the testosterone and, and estrogen precursors. And interestingly, there's actually quite a robust body of evidence, both from the basic science world as well as the um, clinical world, that the DHEA is beneficial both for the pulmonary vasculature as well as for the right ventricle. In contrast to um, data for estrogens that are, you know, controversial and, you know, probably compartment-specific and context-dependent. Um, data for DHEA are uniformly uh, beneficial and in indicating that, that DHEA is, is indeed beneficial in pH. The next miracle supplement, maybe. Uh, I look forward <laughs> to <Yeah. laughs> more, uh, more data coming out about DHEA. So I want to go back to something that you brought up a little bit earlier and just dive into that a little bit. You said there may be some socioeconomic determinants that come along with sex and maybe confounding our data about the effect of sex hormones. Can you speak more to what you mean by that? Yeah, that actually is, you know, that's pure speculation <laughs> um, <laughs> because I'm not aware of any studies that have looked into that um, specifically in the context of the, um, the sex paradox in pH. But the reason why I said it is we know from other diseases, right, that things like access to care and um, things like, you know, access to medications and things like thresholds to present to a healthcare provider are different between men and women. So it could easily be that maybe some of these differences exist in in the pulmonary hypertension population as well. But again, nobody really has, has looked at that. I think in general, we have not paid a lot of attention to the role of socioeconomic factors in, in pulmonary vascular disease. And um, I think that is really an area that is ripe for further investigation. Yeah, definitely. And 
I suppose when I was thinking about it, I was also thinking about the role of medications that women may use, such as birth control or other estrogen-containing medications, and presume that that's been looked at in the setting of the sex paradox? Yeah, that's a great question. So there have been some studies that looked into that. They also looked at the role of other comorbidities that might maybe be more common in, in, in females, such as autoimmune disease. You know, but clearly, you know, something that is more common in women than in men is, is pregnancy, right? And which certainly does not happen in men at all. Um, so some people think that maybe pregnancy might have something to do. Uh, and I'm not talking, you know, so much about the fact that, you know, sometimes pH gets diagnosed during pregnancy. Um, but maybe that pregnancy could set something off in the body that will then lead to pH development down the road, like almost like an autoimmune you know, phenomenon that could be initiated by pregnancy. But then, of course, there are a lot of drugs that you know, are used in women or, and not in men. You know, I'm just not only thinking about you know, hormone replacement therapies or birth control pills, but also things like thyroid replacement therapy or appetite inhibitors, right, which, as you know, has been linked to PAH development. And that's actually an interesting observation since a lot of these appetite inhibitor drugs um, work on the uh, serotonin pathway. And there is some data from the basic science world that there is crosstalk between estrogen signaling and serotonin signaling. So, you know, one possibility is that maybe different exposures, you know, sex-dependently may cause pulmonary hypertension maybe in one in one gender more so than than in the other. So many things to look at and think about. Definitely lots of future investigation opportunities. Uh, A lot. And, you know, that's, I think that's part of the challenge. There's just a lot of potential confounders, right, right, that could come into play here. And you could actually almost take a nihilistic, you know, point of view and say, okay, women do better than men, but... This might all have to do with socioeconomic factors. Maybe yeah. you know, maybe sex hormones have nothing to do with that. But the basic science look- data would, wouldn't support that, though. It sounds like there's enough mouse models that have a signal for the estrogens playing a role, but it seems unrelated. Right. It's unrelated. Exactly, and there was actually a very elegant study from the Dutch group that showed that about 40 to 50 percent of the survival difference between men and women can actually be explained by better you know, RV ejection fraction in the female population. I think there's clearly biology at play. Yeah, great. Well, shifting gears a bit, what do you think the implications are using the knowledge that we have about the sex paradox for therapy? Are there any studies that have been done in humans looking at some of the drugs we have that affect the hormone pathways? Yeah, that's that's a super interesting question, Megan. You know, as I said, we've done a lot of progress in the basic science world over the last 20, 20 years or so. And indeed, this actually has triggered several clinical trials that either have been completed already or um, are currently ongoing. I should mention that in addition to all the basic science investigations that have been done in animals and in cell culture models, um, there also have been a lot of translational studies in in patients with PAH looking at the role of particularly, again, you know, estrogens, but also DHEA. And one of the more recent findings here actually showed that levels of sex hormones um, indeed um, correlate with outcomes 
both in men as well as in postmenopausal women, and specifically um, high estrogen levels, so high plasma estrogen levels, um, have been identified as risk, as risk factors for PAH development in both men as well as uh, postmenopausal women. Similarly, low DHEA plasma levels um, have been linked to PAH development. And these observations did lead to the design of, of several um, clinical trials that we can talk about. And I think it's really worthwhile um, taking some time to, to talk about those. So the first intervention study that was performed and that was published in 2017 was done by Steve Kaywood. And what Steve did, Steve used the um, aromatase inhibitor anastrozole in patients with PAH. So uh, you may remember that aromatase is the enzyme that converts testosterone to 17-beta-estradiol or E2. So the idea here was to reduce plasma estradiol levels. And again, the, you know, the rationale for this is based on the observation that, that estrogens have been linked to um, promoting pulmonary vascular remodeling. Um, so this was a small um, phase one trial with only, I think, you know, 15 or 16 patients in each group. But what Steve found was when he gave anastrozole to postmenopausal PAH patients, this was A, safe, and a B, it was associated with a you know, small but um, significant increase in six-minute walk distance. So really, this was a safety study, and um, this has now triggered a uh, multicenter phase two trial, again, looking at the role of estrogen inhibition with anastrozole in PAH. Another study that was just published earlier this year, um, actually just a few weeks ago, in the white journal was also done um, by Steve Kaywood. What Steve did here, um, again, this is a small pilot study. Um, here he used an estrogen receptor inhibitor named Fulvestrand, which um, you may know from the uh, breast cancer literature. So this is something that has been uh, used for breast cancer in the past. Um, what Steve did here is he gave um, Fulvestrand to five postmenopausal women um, with PAH. And here um, he found that six-minute walk distance really was not affected. He looked at one specific plasma metabolite of estradiol, which was decreased after you know, estrogen receptor inhibition. And he interestingly, interestingly also looked at the lung uptake of 18-fluoroestradiol as a marker for, for estrogen receptor you know, activity, but this was not changed. So you know, this is a really cool study. I think, unfortunately, it's a little difficult to really identify the uh, results very well with, with only five patients, but I think yeah, it's definitely a, a step in the, yeah, it's a step in the right direction, you know, and I think it's a type of study we, we need to do. Again, maybe more of a safety study, just helping us to move forward in the right direction. Again, yeah, that's right. And I think this is really where the field is, you know, just doing small small pilot studies looking at safety. Similarly, Vanderbilt Group is doing a single-center phase two trial of tamoxifen um, and selective estrogen receptor modulator. Again, looking at only a small number of patients, I think 24 patients. And here they're looking at TAPSI actually as their primary endpoint. So here the idea is to see whether, you know, um, estrogen receptor modulation is safe and tolerable from an RV function standpoint. 
that does seem to be a concern. So how are investigators balancing the risk of progression from having estrogen on board versus the risk of less beneficial RV function by having the estrogen around? Yeah, I think you bring up a super important point, Megan. You know, I, I think there is a you know, biological rationale to study estrogen inhibition. And so I think these studies really need to be done. And we have to make sure we do these studies right, and that means we have to make sure we pay close attention to RB function. And please let me emphasize that the investigators that are doing these trials um, are absolutely doing that. But, you know, there is um, a solid body of evidence indicating that, that estrogens are beneficial for the right ventral call. So I'm a little worried that if we inhibit estrogens, uh, we might potentially do a disservice to patients that really are, you know, requiring um, our, or that, that are particularly um, dependent on RV adaptation. And I think, you know, what we might learn moving forward is that maybe some patients will benefit from estrogen signaling inhibition, but not everybody, you know. Some patients may actually benefit from enhancing estrogen signaling in the right ventricle in order to to boost their RV function. And if you look at Steve Kaywood's, you know, pilot study with anestrozole, in the supplement they have spaghetti blots of all the patients and they actually did look at RV function, secondary endpoint, and while RV function was not changed in the entire study group overall, there were a couple of patients where RV function actually got worse. There were some patients where RV function got, got better, you know. So I think we really need to understand what is the difference between these patients um, so that we can then maybe in a, you know, in a precise and personalized manner specifically manipulate estrogen signaling in, in a way that maybe some patients benefit from inhibition, but others may benefit from, you know, enhancing estrogenic signaling. And so I think, you know, we really need to do these studies. And then when we do these studies, we hopefully will learn about how do patients with different estrogen levels or different disease stages respond to manipulation of the pathway because not everybody may respond in the same way, right? And at the end of the day, you know, maybe maybe when you have early PAH or when you are at risk for PAH development, you may benefit from estrogen inhibition with, with something like, you know, fulvastrand or anestrozole. But then when you have advanced PAH and you really, you know, have an RV that's on the edge, maybe then you will benefit from enhancing estrogenic signaling in the RV to, to foster RV adaptation. These are the questions we need to ask and, and answer moving forward. Yeah, an interesting study might be looking at rescuing a failing RV in the acute setting. I don't know if that's been looked at at all uh, with estrogen, though. So will an estrogen infusion help hospitalize PAH patient who's got a failing RV? Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is a population where, you know, I guess you have nothing to lose, right? And yeah, these these are exactly the questions we need to ask. One other follow-up question about these studies. Why did they choose postmenopausal women? It seems like a lot of the PAH patients we see are premenopausal women, you know, in their 20s to 40s. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah you, you bring up a good point, you know. Um, you could almost say, well, postmenopausal women, you know, are like, if you look at a disease like LAM, um, lymphangiomyomatosis, that is also estrogen-driven. 
disease progression goes down dramatically after menopause because, you know, a lot of the estrogen is already out of the system. Um, so, yeah, you have to ask yourself, you know, why do we not look at premenopausal women? Because maybe those would be a population where there is, you know, for lack of a better word, more targets, right? Um, but I think the concern here is side effects, you know, and that's that's one thing we have not talked about um, um, you may know that, that estrogen inhibition is actually associated with significant side effects, right? Hot flashes, depression, bone density, loss. So it's not necessarily a benign therapy. And I think the concern um, so far has been to avoid premenopausal women because there's concern that we would induce um, significant side effects. Yeah, that makes sense. Maybe something to look at in the future. Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. And, and, and I think... Yeah, and I think one of the rationales was to look at, you know, postmenopausal women first um, and, you know, then take what we have learned um, from that population maybe to a premenopausal uh, population if there is, you know, a strong signal in the data. Interesting. Great. Well, I wanted to switch gears again a little bit, but is there anything else that you feel like we should talk about in regards to these studies that have been done or the therapeutic targets? Yeah, so one more thing I wanted to add is, um, again, we've talked about estrogens and estrogen inhibition, but there are other sex hormones, and you may remember that I mentioned that DHEA actually has a lot of pretty robust, you know, basic science and clinical data behind it. So this, um, interestingly, has triggered a clinical trial of DHEA supplementation in, in PAH. So this is a study that is currently being performed by Corey Ventitulo at Brown University. And uh, Corey here is specifically looking at RV strain um, by cardiac MRI as the primary endpoint. Um, and again, the rationale here is that uh, there is data that DHEA is uh, beneficial both in the pulmonary vasculature as well as in the right ventricle. And that's a study that I'm very excited about. Great be really interesting to see those results. Yeah, I think the next five years will be very interesting with regards to PAH clinical trials, um, looking at sex hormone modification. What are you currently working on in your lab? Oh, yeah, thanks for asking that. So we, uh, we are specifically interested in the mechanisms that are underlying estrogen's um, RV protective effects. So actually, when I started doing this research, um, I looked a lot at estrogen effects in the pulmonary vasculature, but then you know, over the years when we realized how important the RV is for um, adaptation in, in, in PAH, um, we shifted gears a little bit and started looking more at, at estrogen signaling in the right ventricle. So specifically what we are looking at is um, how estrogens modify cardiomyocyte contractility as well as angiogenesis in the right ventricle. And um, we have some exciting data um, indicating that estrogen receptor alpha is mediating a lot of beneficial effects in the RV. So we're currently looking at um, the mechanisms and also at the downstream targets of, of ER alpha. Because one of my hopes and dreams is that, you know, maybe one day we'll be able to come up with some non-hormonal and specifically targeted therapies that specifically enhance RV function, right? Because at this point, we do not really have any RV-directed therapies in PAH. So by studying estrogenic signaling, we might be able to come up with novel mediators of RV adaptation that we can then 
you know, harness um, therapeutically both in men and women with PAH. That's really interesting. Definitely heading in the right direction and sounds like a lot of exciting stuff coming out of your lab. So we'll keep an eye out for more publications and presentations. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Well, great. I think that was all the questions that I had wanted to cover today. Is there anything else that you feel like the audience needs to hear about this important topic? Um, I guess, you know, the, the only other thing I would say is that this whole study of sex hormone signaling, I think, you know, it is a really nice example of how, you know, basic science and translational studies can lead to the development of clinical trials and then hopefully new, new therapies that, that benefit patients. And I think this is really an area that is a great example of the, uh, the possibilities of personalized medicine, right? I think if we Absolutely. look at men and women and if we look at pre- and postmenopausal women, that's you know, that is personalized medicine, right? So personalized medicine does not need to involve, you know, whole genome sequencing or, you know, sophisticated methods like that. But I think if we ask ourselves the question, what is different between men and women and what is different between pre- and postmenal women with pH, that is personalized medicine, you know? And, and maybe we will be able to come up with treatments, you know, that are different for men versus women with pH, or that are different for, you know, let's say an RB failure um, phenotype of PAH versus somebody that has a well-adapted RB, you know. So I think um, it's a great area for, for personalized medicine. And I think by looking at things like estrogen levels and, you know, maybe also estrogen receptor density and activity, you know, like what is being done in breast cancer and different disease stages, we will hopefully be able to find, you know, targeted and really potent novel interventions. I think this is a real area of need in, in the pH role. So, so I think I just wanted to use this opportunity to make a pitch for personalized medicine. Absolutely. I like that you highlighted it is a different approach than the focus right now, which is mostly on genetics and sequencing, as you mentioned. But this is an equally important opportunity to try and target and personalize for individual patients. So. Great. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Wonderful. Well, everyone, I feel like we've covered a lot of very interesting material today with Dr. Lamb, so I really appreciate him taking the time to chat with me so we can share this. Until next time, this is Megan Cyrilis with the ATS Breathe Easy podcast and the Topics in Pulmonary Hypertension series. Follow me on Twitter at MMCyrilis, C-I-R-U-L-I-S, to stay up to date when new topics in PH podcasts are available. We hope you have enjoyed today's show, and we'll see you next time.